Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, a place for intelligent, independent podcasts to come together with intelligent, independent-minded listeners. Here's a show I'd like you to check out this month. Hello there, history friend. Zach Twomley here. You may know me from When Diplomacy Fails podcast, and I am in fact the Agora Podcast of the month of September, which is pretty cool. But what you may not know is that I have something very special planned in this month of September. How special? Well, think of a historical fiction series set during the Thirty Years' War, or the early to mid-17th century, for those of us not as obsessed with the Thirty Years' War as myself. On the 15th of September, I'm releasing the first of what I am intend to be a very long historical fiction series. The series will be called Matchlock, a Thirty Years' War story, and the first installment will be called Matchlock and the Embassy. What can you expect from this series? Well, the usual blend of war and diplomacy that you would get from When Diplomacy Fails podcast, because Matthew Locke, or Matchlock as he becomes in the first book, spoiler alert, happens to be an absolute pro with the Matchlock musket, but he also happens to be well-educated and quite a fan of talking his way out of situations as well. So yes, I managed to bring diplomacy into my own fiction series. But I'm really, really excited about it, guys. I haven't been this excited about anything I've done since I started When Diplomacy Fails nearly 10 years ago. I promised myself for a long time that I would release a novel before I was 30, and I managed to squeeze in there just by about a month. So on the 15th of September, if you would like to check out Matchlock and the Embassy and tell all your friends about it too, that would be fantastic. You may hear me guesting on different shows, and I hope you don't mind me guesting on this one. That's because I'm doing my best to spread the word about it, because I am so, so excited. And I hope you'll join me in this journey as well. All right, now I hope you enjoy the actual podcast that you signed up for. Take care, and I'm sure that I'll be seeing you soon. Hello and welcome to Why Though? A personal journey through my record collection. This is the show that asks that most important of all questions, why is this record in my collection, and is it any good? My name is Benjamin Jacobs, the confused owner of the records and the host of the show. This is episode three, Viva La Rock by Adam Ant. This show's second album by the post-punk legend Adam Ant will allow me to conclude the story of his career, for your edification, while reflecting on the strange time period of the mid-80s. And we will, of course, get to judge whether we like the album or not. But before I get to that, let me begin where I always begin, with the story of how I came to own this album. 
Last time out, we discussed the late lamented albums of Worcester, Massachusetts, the store whose selection was as unique and interesting as the physical plant of the store was dingy and slightly alarming. Today we turn to a place that I think we will be visiting a lot, a place where I spent huge portions of my youth, the globally renowned Princeton Record Exchange of Princeton, New Jersey. For the history of this place, I will quote from their website. After graduating from college in 1975, Barry, the owner, traveled to flea markets in college towns buying, selling, and trading records. He slept in his van and set up shop on street corners, college bookstores, Princeton's was one, or wherever he could find a space. Eventually tiring of life on the road, in 1980 he established our first store in Princeton, New Jersey. The throng of customers and massive amount of merchandise soon overwhelmed the small space, so in 1985 we moved to our present location on South Tulane Street, with five times the retail area. Even so, we are usually packed to the rafters with music and movies. From humble beginnings, Princeton Record Exchange has grown to be one of the largest independent music stores in the country. End quote. The timing and location of this choice were fortuitous. The corridor between Princeton, New Jersey, New Brunswick, New Jersey, and New York City was starting a major economic boom, which continues to this day, fueled by the biotech industry. But more importantly to our story, the string of major colleges. These colleges created a critical mass of kids with disposable income that were very into a wide variety of art and musical subcultures. Punk in particular became bedrock in New Jersey, but all genres flourished. Located right off the Princeton campus, whose students are more flush with cash than normal college students, Princeton would also become something of a tourist draw as an adorable downtown area with an attractive retail district of independent stores. In a word, it's got a lot of foot traffic, it's a great place for an independent record store to thrive, away from competition by major big-box retailers. Beyond the location, however, the staff and their policies are outrageously good for customers. Princeton Record Exchange doesn't just sell music, they trade it. And their standing policy is that they will give you something for any record, CD, audio tape, DVD, whatever, that you bring in. Even if it's just a few cents, they'll give you something. They will even buy stuff by the yard if you bring in a particularly large collection, say you're liquidating an estate sale or something like that. Once they have acquired the CDs, records, etc., they guarantee customers that the stuff they, in turn, sell will play. Which is to say, I can sell them a pile of scratched-up CDs, and they will give me something for it, but then I know that the stuff that I buy from them, in turn, will work when I play it. This means that they eat a bunch of costs in the process, and they have a, a fair bit of labor involved in getting these things and attempting to play them and make sure that they're in good condition that they work. Princeton Record Exchange is able to sustain this business model by having very loyal customers and moving huge volumes of stuff, in part by pricing the less desirable items very low. They'll all work, but, you know, maybe you don't want to pay a lot for some of this stuff. How low? Something like a quarter of the store is devoted to CDs priced at $2 per album. Now, I don't know, it's been a few years since I've been there, but that's the price range, $2 per album. This brings in people, moves a lot of product, and helps them sustain more expensive, curated parts of their collection. It also makes for very loyal customers, like I said. I should also say that stuff you may have heard of is more likely to be 3 or 5 but, you know, you can go through these bins of $2 CDs, and, you know, that's a pretty good deal. I grew up about 20 minutes away from Princeton, near the much less snooty city of New Brunswick, New Jersey. The pricing structure of Princeton Record Exchange meant that, even on my reasonably minimal allowance, 
I could afford to buy multiple CDs in a month, and it wasn't the end of the world if they sucked. Worst case scenario, I could just sell them back, albeit at a much lower price. So something like once per month, my friends and I would pile into a car and head down. I would come away with something like 5 to 10 CDs, depending on whether I was tempted by one of the more high-value items. We had a system for perusing the $2 box. Most of the stuff in there we hadn't heard of, but we, we didn't want to just buy random things. When we looked at an album, we looked to see if there were three things about it that we liked, for whatever reason. It could be anything. Band name, album name, album art, record label, band members, names of the songs, whatever. If it made us giggle or it moved us in some way, we'd throw it on the pile. Obviously, if we'd heard of the band and it was something that we wanted, we'd put that on the pile as well. Then, at the end, we would gather for the ritual of winnowing our stacks. We would see what we had been able to find and pick through each other's discards, and we were all satisfied with our stacks and we'd eliminated enough CDs so that we could afford what we were holding. It was time to go. Once we had paid and headed back to the car, the ritual continued. We would take turns checking out our music. Each person would get to listen to the first two songs on an album, and then we would move on to the next person until we got home. Inevitably, we would each end up with stuff we hadn't quite managed to listen to on the car ride, even if we took the uh, scenic route. And this is part of how I ended up with so much stuff in my CD collection that I haven't listened to yet. All of this has very little to do with the topic of this show, which is records. Because you will note, most cars do not have record players. And for now, this series is focused on records. It is true that the trade in extremely budget CDs keeps people coming in the doors of Princeton Record Exchange, but it's not the kind of thing that makes a business like this really thrive or gain the international reputation that Princeton Record Exchange does have. While you know, us high school kids were focused on the CDs, people flew in from around the world to see Princeton Record Exchange's well-priced and extremely well-curated record collection. Years after vinyl stopped being produced, and in that sort of gap period when it hadn't quite gained cachet yet, Princeton Record Exchange continued to maintain their selection of high-quality curated records at very reasonable prices. This place has not a little to do with me finally starting to get into records, although the fact I listened to them with my parents when I was a kid also helps, but the fact that I had these records available by, you know, some really great bands, that certainly had something to do with it. Of course, the flip side of this is that because cars do not have record players in them, records didn't really fit into this whole ritual. So if I didn't listen to something immediately when I got back, you know, there's even odds that it would just sort of sit. Now, Princeton Record Exchange is still there, but I am not. I no longer live in New Jersey, and this is one thing about New Jersey that I definitely miss. Hopefully someday I will be able to make another pilgrimage back to these hallowed shelves. In any case, I purchased Viva La Rock from Princeton Record Exchange for $2. I know this as the price tag is still on it, which is very convenient for this project. The price tag not only tells us where I got the record, but it also tells us that, according to the very discerning staff of Princeton Record Exchange, this record was not exactly in high demand. No one's really going to fly in from Hong Kong specifically to try and find Viva La Rock. Let us examine why. The album itself is... confusing. Adamant stands on the front cover with a smug smile, holding a wide-body guitar over his shoulder, and is sporting a rockabilly haircut. He's wearing a see-through mesh vest and colorful chaps. He has wads of paper money coming out of an armpit holster, and is holding another wad of cash near his crotch. 
On the back, the band are dressed in a somewhat standard 80s rock outfits, except they have NASA patches on their leather jackets. So is this going to be some kind of rockabilly record, but in space? Well, yes, but to understand what is going on, we need to pick up the story of Adamant, which we left off last time. As you will recall, last time we talked about how Adam Ant was one of the many art students in London to become involved in the explosion of musical energy that was the punk scene from 1976 to 1979. Adam assembled a punk band from the other art students and people hanging around the sex fashion boutique. Unfortunately, his band, Adam and the Ants, never quite broke through the way he wanted. Ultimately, he turned to Malcolm McLaurin, the notorious former manager of the Sex Pistols, to take on a management role to get the band some attention on the radio. Instead, Malcolm McLaurin talked the other members of the Ants into quitting and setting up a new band under McLaurin's control. That band was called Bow Wow Wow, and it was fronted by a 14-year-old girl named Annabelle Wynn, and she appeared naked on the front cover of the first album. And they were used to promote a theoretical pro-pedophilia magazine. Not that anyone in the band, or McLaurin for that matter, seemed to have been pedophiles, it was all to get news coverage by shocked and angry reporters, in which the band would be seen by the public in outfits that were sold at the sex boutique, allowing McLaurin's partner, Vivian Westwood, to continue her climb up the spire of the fashion world with McLaurin's grubby fingers firmly gripped upon her coattails. Because Malcolm McLaurin was trash. Human-shaped trash. We will be getting back to Malcolm McLaurin later, in later records in this series, but for now, let's get back to Adam. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Having had his band effectively stolen from him, Adam reformed the band with a number of big names from the early punk scene in a lineup with two drummers. The album this new lineup put together, Kings of the Wild Frontier, is very well regarded and generated number one singles. But I don't own it. I'm told the album saw Adam moving musically in a pop-punk direction, a comment that we should probably not assume means that they sounded like Blink-182, but rather more like the Ramones and things like that. One thing that is clear from the album art, which involved Adam in full-on face paint, is that Adam's image had started moving decidedly in a glam rock direction. A third album followed called Prince Charming, which was not well regarded and includes a track entitled Ant Rap, whose title makes me very afraid. Luckily, I also don't own that one, so I don't have to suffer through that one. At this point, in a move that seems like an odd retread of previous events, Adam broke up the band and recruited new musicians, retaining the two-drummer lineup for some reason. That said, he retained his songwriting partnership with Marco Peroni, but Peroni basically refused to tour at this point. 
Under this arrangement, two more albums were recorded before today's subject, Viva La Rock. So this is the third album from this lineup. Some of these albums were hits, some were not. Viva La Rock received very little attention when it was released, and was apparently not supported very well by the label. Disgruntled, Adam decided to focus more on his acting career, because of course he's a triple threat, and after that his music career sort of petered out. To summarize all this into a little bit more of a coherent narrative, between 1979 and 1983, over the course of what were essentially three separate bands, Adam Ant released more or less an album per year. Adam and the Ants were solidly in the punk and new wave oeuvre of their time, though he affected a glam rock persona and was drifting towards pop. This all sort of culminated in Viva La Rock, which was produced by Tony Visconti and heavily influenced by Ants' glam rock heroes David Bowie and Mark Bolan. After this album fizzled, he drifted out of music. So, that's enough context. How does it sound? Well, it's... fine? It's fine. Listening to it is not painful. It's pretty fun, even. It's just all kind of samey. I made a, made a bit of a mistake going into this. I accidentally read ahead and learned about Adam Ant's drift into glam rock and such. Given how much I liked his first album, I was really hoping this was going to be some kind of genius-level rockabilly in space kind of thing. But it's not really that. There's some rockabilly elements, and there's, there's a lot of space. On the other hand, I was sort of afraid that it was going to be a kind of sad Ziggy Stardust thing, and it's not that either. I should probably say here, I respect Bowie and what he did with Ziggy Stardust. I appreciate the atmosphere, and there are some fine tunes in there. But for the most part, I find it kind of slow. It's not the kind of thing I put on for fun. So with that said, I was kind of dreading this album as being a weird punk version of that somehow. Super atmospheric, slightly pretentious, and a tad boring. And it's... It's definitely not that. This album is up-tempo and major key for pretty much the every track, but in that sort of infantile Pink Floyd kind of way, because, oh, controversial opinion number two, I find Pink Floyd to be kind of infantile. Let's start breaking this down with the lyrics. All the songs do seem to have a sci-fi theme, which is, you know, cool. I like genre fiction, but it seems to serve no real purpose here. The songs are about rockers in space who spend their space time worrying about girls and making money and looking cool. Maybe this was supposed to be like an ironic reflection on the society in the 1980s, sort of a wow, we have all this technology and comfort and amazing stuff, and we seem to be wasting it on obsessing over making money and our little lives. But if that's the intention, it really doesn't come through. Partly this is a reflection of how I feel about Adam Ant at this point in his career. It seems from his bio that Adam was pretty consistently worried about getting famous and making money and, you know, girls and stuff like that. I have to say, I respect that about him. That's fine. He's a great trier. He's clearly attacking his desire to be famous by trying to be as creative and fun as possible, which is pretty nice compared to some of his other 1980s pseudo-glam rock peers, who I could name, who made dumb, lazy music for an audience they clearly did not respect. Yes. Mm. At the same time, given Adam's bio, this does not seem like the setup you would expect for a person writing genre fiction to take intellectual pot shots at greedy materialists. Unless he's a huge hypocrite, or this is some kind of weird 3D chess self-criticism. But it seems more like these are songs about things Adam finds fun, and wouldn't those fun things be even funner in space? As an aside, there's one other album that it really reminds me of, and it turns out to not be a nice comparison. 
there's this band I really love, the long gone, late lamented 1945. And at one point, somewhere in there, in the early aughts, late to late 90s, somewhere in there, they used to get together with friends and just write and record an entire album in one night, just as like a fun project. They would sort of select a theme beforehand, but it was a simple prompt like cars or stuff in space. They eventually put three of these albums together and released it through a local record company called Skybucket Records down in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. This was released as the One Night Record Project, and it has three different albums in it. Anyway, the first of these albums is called Spacelink, and it's all stuff in space. And they're all just really fun rock pop songs. The lyrics are just like, you know, there's this girl, she hates her job, but she's in space, and that's cool. The songs are mostly kind of funny, and I really love the album. But the fact that it's random stuff but in space is part of the joke, because the album was literally slapped together in one night. Viva La Rock is a real album, made by a serious artist, presumably who put some time into this, his creative writing partner, and two of the top producers of the era, and somehow it still feels less well-developed than Spaceling from the One Night Record project. And yes, after some wrangling on my part, there is a link to Spaceling in the show notes, so go check that out. Took me a bunch of effort to get that online. Anyway, the point is that a few grad school kids from Birmingham seem to me to have made a better version of this record in one night than Adam did over a few months, working with some of the top talent in the world, which is kind of unfortunate. I have to add that the album packaging does him no favors here. The lyrics are printed on the album sleeve in one solid wall of text, which is, you know, certainly something you see around, but it's particularly unsuited to the kinds of songs that Adam writes. It makes it hard to read. Now, you can read the individual words and everything, but of course there's no punctuation, and it makes it hard to scan without the line breaks. You sort of don't get the beats and the rhythm. Maybe this is the sort of thing that only bothers me, but it makes it really hard to follow what's going on. So if the art for Dirk Ware's White Socks was disappointingly plain, this one is insultingly brutalist in the internal packaging in a way that actually hurts the listening experience. Because, as with Dirk Ware's White Socks, his lyrical style is very abstract. It's almost an expressionistic word picture, and it can sound like total gibberish. Having the lyrics presented with line breaks makes it much easier to scan, and having them presented as a solid wall of text makes it nearly impossible to sort out what he's saying in relation to the music, which is super uptempo and bombastic. Which brings us to the music. The music is sort of the strangest part of this whole record, and it's... it's fine. It's fine, really. As in Dirk Wears White Socks, it's interesting how the songs follow musical types while somehow all being very much from the British rock tradition. I seem to recognize musical moves from the Beatles, Pink Floyd, Bowie, etc. that in their context seem like references to something I'm not familiar with. I'm guessing something like old dancehall genres that I don't have the background to describe. Beyond this point, there are definitely strong influences from you know, Pink Floyd and Bowie, but mostly in terms of lyrics and maybe in terms of a sort of tongue-in-cheek tone. Majority of the music is very unlike these influences, in the sense that it's not, well, boring to me. Sorry. Sorry, everyone. To give more detail, most songs on the album are very up-tempo and energetic, which I like. They're persistently in a major key, which does get a bit old and sort of samey, but I respect the enthusiasm he's bringing to this all. He retains his signature sort of new wavy, energetic monotone vocal style, which I read one critic aptly call art school vocals. 
He's sort of got a Johnny Rotten kind of timber, except he can actually carry a tune on purpose. The drummers in the album are capable of using complex rhythms, and the musicianship is really not bad, which makes it all the more galling that all the songs are in 4-4. This is where my complaints really come up front. This guy has two drummers. He could be doing crazy math rock stuff, but everything is just up-tempo steady beats. You can tell they're not bad drummers, but the songwriting just doesn't give them much to do. To the point where there are multiple sections of the album where they use the same beat across multiple songs. When you factor in that all the songs are up-tempo and in a major key, it really starts to blend together. This is all very of its time. This was true for Dirk Wears White Socks, as I said last episode, but 1983 was a very different time from 1979. I think of this as basically the sellout phase of New Wave. Think of Robert Palmer, or early George Michael, or even latter-day Dire Straits. Major chords, big sounds, high energy, signifying nothing. Arguably, this era was also very influenced by the Stray Cats, so maybe that had an impact on the whole rockabilly aesthetic going on with the album. Except, you know, the cats were awesome. Rockabilly rules, okay? But just like with Adamant's last album, this might not be as simple as it seems. I keep thinking his work is derivative, but then realize he came out sort of before the other people I'm thinking of. If I'm getting the timeline right, uh, maybe I'm not. But I, I think this album, if I'm getting my timelines right, this album came out a year or two before those other acts broke big with a similar sound. Now, leaving out the Stray Cats, who were just sort of off on their own, doing their own thing here, and given that Dire Straits had a very long career before they really got famous. We're talking about this album coming out a year or two before Robert Palmer and George Michael, and even a year or two before that album by Dire Straits came out, the uh, Money for Nothing album. But, you know, only by a year or so. So as far as the sound of this album goes, it seems like Viva La Rock stole a march on everyone by a little bit. Granted, it was a march towards bad stuff. But that's still kind of cool. So, you know, go Adam Ant. You're sort of a post-punk pioneer, copied by others who broke big using his ideas. Or maybe he was just an amazingly keen bandwagon jumper. I don't know. This era of British pop music is not exactly my forte. What I do know is that this sound is not exactly my thing. God knows we need some up-tempo major key music right now, but with the exception of Stray Cats and Dire Straits, those other acts were just spineless harbingers of a materialistic culture focused on feeling good at the expense of any kind of wider meaning. They're edgeless and unimportant while trying to seem like they signify something. And I do not like them, Sim I am. So I think, to be fair to Adamant, his lyrics were somewhat more interesting than Robert Palmer's. The song Mohair Locker Room Pinup Boys strike me as not the kind of thing a young Republican would listen to riding in their punishment car on the way to the frat party in 1983. In general, I respect the junk tongue-in-cheek tone and the frantic energy and commitment he brings to the lyrics that seem like gibberish, but are actually an expressionistic word picture. The second side of the album has some really interesting tracks, but ultimately, I think I'm making this sound a little bit better than it is. At the end of the day, it's just fine, and everything kind of blends together. The album's not bad, and if you like George Michael, maybe this is a good way for you to get into more interesting music. The album is genuinely a fun listen. Like, I, I wasn't in pain listening to this. It's just hard to pick out one thing to talk about. That's all. This brings us to the final question of today. Will I be keeping this record? At this point, any record is in many ways a historical document, so... If it's not actively painful to listen to, I'm just generally probably going to be keeping it. And in this case, you know, it was kind of fun to listen to. It's not something I'm just going to choose to put on, but, you know, at some point in the future, I might revisit this and feel different. 
I certainly wouldn't advise you to hunt this down on vinyl, but if it falls into your lap, it's worth the shelf space and, you know, it's worth the time you put into listening to it in preparation for this episode. So that's us for today. Before I wrap up, I should add that I have gone ahead and created a website just for this show, finally. I had initially tried to keep this as part of the Wittenberg to Westphalia site, but that was clunky and it looked really weird when I posted links in social media. Plus, I couldn't set up things like a button for the RSS feed that was unique to this show as opposed to the other show, so it was just a non-starter. But since I have made a new site, I do hope you all go check it out. I put some work into that, and it's fun. The link is in the show notes. It has a neat section about the show and a list of all the records we've covered, which is going to be more important going forward. Right now, there's two things on it, so, yeah. And then there's links to ways that you can help support the show. Speaking of, don't forget this is a new show. I could really use your help spreading the word. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Tell particularly charismatic trees. Leave ratings and reviews on your favorite podcatcher, all that stuff. You know those things really help drive the algorithm to recommend this more in Discovery. And given that I chose a name like Why Though, which four or five other podcasts have, which was not smart in retrospect. Anyway, that stuff's important. And of course, if you have a few bucks, please think about becoming a supporter on Patreon. Now then. Next time out, we will be changing gears somewhat. We will zoom from the glamorous world of pop in the 1980s in London to Tony's mom's garage in the 1980s era of Orange County, California punk rock. That's right, for those of you listening along, crank up your music streaming devices and find the complete demos of The Adolescents, 1980 to 1986. For those of you not into punk, I sympathize. I do promise that some non-punk stuff is coming up in uh, about two albums, but for now, courage. And I will see you next time. And as always, I hope that all of you find the answers you seek in your record collection. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 